Welcome to uh, this year's second program event of the 2018. Uh, tonight's Cornet New York City program event is the best companies to work for, how they got there, and how they stay there. Uh, just keep in mind there will be a third big uh, program event in September with a big speaker. Uh, we'll keep you posted, but uh, this is just a wonderful job our program committee does here. And uh, Thank you for coming. I'm Barry Alton. I'm the Managing Director and Global Head of Real Estate for Jefferies. I'm also the Chair of the Cornet City, New York chapter. Um, also, I'd like to take this opportunity to uh, just remind everybody about some of our exciting upcoming events. This list is probably as long as my arm, so I'm not going to bring you through all of it, but I'll bring up a few. So, uh, tomorrow, we have the Public Policy Committee, which will host their tour of the, new, of the Time Warner headquarters at Hudson Yards. And on Thursday, the 26th, the Young Leaders Committee will host a Dale Carnegie session, Finding Your Leadership Style, which is open to young leaders. Uh, Monday the 30th, Membership Committee will be hosting a new membership reception at Cone Resnick. That'll be just a fun networking event. I'd love you to come. And on Wednesday, May 2nd, the Women's Group will be hosting an event at Viacom featuring Erin Luce Kutaro, the founder and CEO of Should She Should Run, a leading nonpartisan organization working to increase the number of women running for office in the United States. And, uh, and just to remind you, the Women's Group is not for women only. Right. Um, with that, uh, I advise you to look at the uh, chapter website if you haven't memorized all that and would like to know more about everything going on through the summer of 2018. Um, now, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Cornet New York City Programs Committee member and Executive Vice President of Viacom, Ellen Albert. Thank you, Barry, and welcome to everyone. I'm so glad you've recovered from the Cornet Annual Dinner to make it out on an evening a few days later. So tonight we have, I think, a really uh, great program, and I think one of the things that is going to be particularly interesting is you're going to hear from, uh, you know, people who really make it happen at these uh, great companies who are not real estate people, so they have a different perspective. And as you know, the Fortune uh, magazine conducts an annual survey to identify the top 100 companies to work for, and which is a very coveted and challenging designation. And we're really fortunate to uh, find three representatives from uh, three of these companies. So tonight, joining us this evening, we have Amy Kotolsky from Director of Hospitality, Operations, and Marketing at the Boston Consulting Group. Amy, and not everyone's named Amy, but we have another Amy. Um, Malnata from uh, Vice President, Brand and Content Strategy Group at Goldman Sachs. And Sean Smith, Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Chief Human Resources Officer at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Our moderator this evening is Arthur Woods, co-founder of Imperative, whose mission is to drive employee engagement and workplace. Our goal for this evening is for each of us to be able to learn something about what Boston Consulting Group, Goldman Sachs, and New York Presbyterian Hospital have done inside their four walls to achieve this coveted designation and what they are doing to keep it. So with this in mind, the hope is each of us can take something back to our workplace that will help raise the bar for all of us. So thank you, and here are our panel. All right, good evening, everyone. Good evening. 
How was the Intrepid? Was it good? So I have, I have a theory about what happened with this. The planning committee was sitting around, and they, you know, as, as real estate professionals, no one could agree as to what par which parcel of land you should be hosting the dinner on. So they said, well, let's just do it on a boat, right? Is that what happened? Okay. So that's my cheesy joke there. Okay. So we have a, a very exciting conversation today, um, which I know has tangentially to do with what you lead every day. Um, and, and it's something that is so core to what will really be the future of how we come to work every day. Um, just to give you a couple stats, uh, you know, years and years ago, in 1955, the average corporation was 75 years old. 1955, 75 years old. Today, can anyone guess the average age of a corporation today? Two years. Oh, that's pretty low. 15 years. 15 years is the average age of a corporation today. So Deloitte has estimated that 93% of CEOs believe something has got to change with the way that we engage our people. 34% of those CEOs believe that their existing talent strategies, holistically, from everything that they say, every, every way that they measure their people, the way that they uh, look at their real estate and office space, only 34% of CEOs believe that they have done what is necessary to fully engage and empower their people. And we also know that 67%, if not 70%, of the workforce today is disengaged at work. So there's this big issue. And one of the key things we've already talked about is the question, who owns the solution to this big issue? We know that the workplace is changing. People are leaving their jobs at a faster rate than we've ever seen. People are disengaged and unfulfilled in their work. And who owns the solution? Is, th is this just about our annual engagement survey? Is this just HR's problem? Or is there more at stake? One of the key things that we, we know as well is that people are working remotely more than ever. Um, what implications does that have on our performance, on the way that we build community in our workplaces? So these are all the exciting opportunities we have a chance to, to address here. And um, you have three leaders in three very different roles from three leading organizations, all different sectors. Um, you know, Sean, who leads HR at New York Presbyterian, uh, one of the leading healthcare systems in the world. Um, you have Amy, who is spearheading one of the most transformational office moves in the world in BCG, one of the leaders in management consulting, who has decided that they don't simply just want people to work from home. They want to build community in a workplace. And you have Amy, who leads culture at Goldman Sachs as the vice president there, who's been there for 17 years and has watched the transformation of the financial sector as going from, from peaks to valleys, now a true leader in the space, reinventing what it truly means to engage someone and employ someone in a sector that has a, a changing future. So I'm so excited to first just start at a personal level because the, the core theme of today is we don't have to overly complicate this solution, right? We've built so many systems, we've built so many metrics, and if we know that all of these systems and metrics that we've built are leading to the metrics we see today, the question is how do we, in many cases, simplify a solution and co-own what's next in the way that we look at culture. So I want to start by, by asking each of you, 
Um, why do you come to work and do the work that you do? And share, us just, w share with us a little bit about your story, because you're, you're each leading um, what I would say are very future-thinking roles in, in your organizations that are, are going to be, uh, I think, in many cases, the templates that many other organizations will follow. So Amy, let's start with you. Tell us a bit more about your story. Great. So mine is an unconventional one. Um, I uh, came to Goldman from the government after having been in D.C. for a number of years and um, had come and worked in our executive office and fell into culture, if you can actually fall into culture, um, by working so closely with some of our senior executives um, at, at the firm during a very pivotal time. I joined the firm in 2001, shortly before 9-11, so it was definitely a unique time. And um, over the course of uh, the next four or five years, started to engage more into um, understanding our culture, not an expert um, by training, formal training, but have become one over time. And so now, um, because Goldman is such a place of meritocracy, and we've talked about that, um, they allowed me to evolve into this extraordinary role that brings together um, people from across all the different divisions, from across all the different regions, to make sure that we're not only building but maintaining um, the firm's culture through all of these peaks and valleys, tremendous periods of growth, and even tremendous periods of um, drawing back with employees uh, as we become more global and as we embark on our 150th anniversary, which is taking place next year. So um, it's really a, an amazing time for us. That's incredible. Amy, second Amy. So um, I also had a bit of an unconventional experience. I spent uh, most of my early career in marketing communications um, for a variety of organizations. And I had a great opportunity presented to me to join a startup retail entertainment company um, that was looking to build really interesting, interactive, very brand-centric business um, for, children, for kids and adults. Um, Four-wall retail, which I knew nothing about at the time, and of course thought I knew everything about, because how hard can it be? Um, and, uh, and we built a whole bunch of stores very quickly, and it became a watershed moment to me. I ultimately be moved out of away from marketing um, and as became the chief operating officer. And part of what I had to do when I took on that piece of business was to actually get into the stores and understand mm -hmm. the customer experience. And to do that, um, I stood at the host stand because that's where I was experiencing most of the rhythm. And we had spent years and millions of dollars investing in the brand and the marketing and the design and making sure these, and they were the most beautiful stores you could ever imagine. Um, and the marketing campaigns and the advertising. Um, but we were struggling, and I didn't know why. And it wasn't until I got into the stores and got behind a host stand and behind a cash register, and I looked at the employees, and I realized that they weren't happy. And there was something happening in terms of the value proposition between the employee and the customer that was breaking down. And that became a moment for me where I really recognize the value of employee health and happiness across all mm. dimensions and the way in which that really is the engine for a business and even the most successful businesses are pivot around the employee experience. And so when I was ready to get off the treadmill of the startup, um, which everyone reaches that point at some point, and I 
found BCG was at a really exciting moment in time before the move to Hudson Yards, and I'm sure many of you in the room have visited our office, um, and it was a firm with a very long history that was suddenly forced to take a very hard look at how to sustain a rapidly growing environment that is very people-oriented, culture-oriented, and now is about to move to a brand new space with a lot of transparency and openness with new demands for their employees, and how do we sustain morale when, for many, the job will have changed underneath them? Um, and how do we use our office design as the vessel to telegraph the very special values that BCG has around people and culture and community and the way that we team for our clients? Um, and so that is really what brings me to work every day is that really interesting proposition between making the employee experience great while the business is still running mm. with the acknowledgement that work is sometimes hard and not always great. Yeah, it's true. And Sean, what about you? As you as, as you sort of share your story of how you got to New York Presbyterian. Well, it's interesting. We're not all dissimilar. Um, I think I was just fascinated with people. About 26 years ago, I met uh, someone who was in HR. I didn't even know what HR really did or what it was about. Um, you know, but I remember being really struck by the fact that this person was being paid to talk to people all day. It's just my dream job. Um, <laughs> And I immediately changed my major, and I started to focus on human relations, and then realized how powerful this asset really is. You know, if you can really harness the best from people, then your organization really benefits. And the bottom line is, we all spend about 60% of our budgets on people. Um, you know, so really, really making the best of that. Um, I made an industry change as well, um, just about 20 years ago, and part of that had to do with my lack of identification with the balance sheet, stock prices, and really wanted to get closer with people. And I found that healthcare really offered um, an opportunity to, me to focus on something that was really something that I thought I was good at and something that I wanted those that I work with to also be appreciative of. Um, you know, 20 years ago, um, it wasn't about engagement. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about um, you know, how to harness completely all of the various components of people. But healthcare, a people-centric business, was very focused on the ideals. There's no balance sheet. There is one, but it's about the patients. Mm -hmm. It's also about the people to the patients. And I really um, you know, ended up focused on that despite my brief foray into law. I'm an attorney by background and really consciously decided that that was not the career for me. It did not feed or fuel my passion. Mm. And I think you know, the idea of passion, which is something that um, not everybody will really connect to um, ultimately is part of what I see my job as to ensure that we're getting the right people in the right seats at the right time, yeah. truly enjoying what they do. Mm. Well, I mean, you put it beautifully. And I think this is, this is an opportunity for every stakeholder in the room, which is how do we create environments mm -hmm. from our internal programming to the space we build that unleash the full potential of our people, right? right? And we haven't figured that out. Today, the playbooks we've inherited, even from the amazing schools where you studied HR, for example, um, haven't given us the prescriptive solution for answering that question. And I think that's, that we can look at that and we can hear that and say, wow, that's, that's challenging. We can also hear that and say, wow, that paints an amazing opportunity. So according to our research, um, we've learned that about 37% of the global workforce comes to work primarily for a sense of purpose, 37%. 
Um, another third comes to work primarily for a sense of status, mm -hmm. and the remaining comes to work primarily for money. Mm -hmm. So about a third, a third, a third, mm -hmm. purpose, promotion, paycheck, okay? So when we think of, in each of our sectors, in, in investment banking and in management consulting and in healthcare, as we think of the reason that your highest performing people, the people that really are your culture carriers that you think embrace so much of what you'd sort of hope everyone embraces, when you think of those people who are most purpose-oriented, could you each just maybe describe um, an example of, of what those people are really motivated by when they're coming into work for your organizations each day? So maybe, Amy, we could start with you. Sure, absolutely. I would say that the average person at Goldman Sachs comes to work not just because of the paycheck, but they're looking for the whole experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, people who come to Goldman Sachs tend to be high achievers. Um, they are people who are not only motivated by the paycheck, but they're motivated by working with some of the smartest people. Um, they're motivated by working for an organization that's socially conscious, mm -hmm. um, an organization that will allow and inspire innovation um, that will give them the opportunity to think creatively and find solutions, not only to serve our clients to the best of our ability, but they can also serve our communities. And so I think it sounds a little bit cliche, but it's actually true, and it's not something that it's new. It's mm -hmm. core to our culture. And so I think when you talk about hiring and you talk about retention, for us, our people always expect something a little <clears throat> bit different. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily the traditional benefits that we're talking about, right? It's not just about, we had a conversation earlier about free lunch. It's about something that's bigger than that. Um, and I don't think that that's changed over time, but it's become more accentuated in the recent years. You know, we mentioned we have um, almost 70% of our population are millennials. Mm. And so, um, which may be surprising to people, um, but that does change the values that you need to reinforce. And it is suddenly not just about creating thought leadership opportunities and about giving back, but it is about creating this holistic experience mm. and making sure People spend a lot of time at work, um, and you want to make sure that you're um, adhering to their whole self. So it's everything from the idea of sustainability, mm -hmm. the idea of making sure that they're taking care of themselves from a wellness perspective, mm -hmm. um, having on-site benefits, health care, things like that. But we also run programs like our Thought Leadership Forum program, Talks at GS, um, where we make sure to bring leading thinkers into the firm uh, because our people don't often have the time to have that intellectual stimulation that they're craving outside of their day-to-day -day experience. Um, we recently launched a program called GS Accelerate, which is our own um, innovation incubator. So it's about creating opportunities for people to be stimulated mm -hmm. day in, day out. So you take care of their body, you take care of their mind, and also their spirit. So, again, it sounds kind of Distantly cliche. than their wallet, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's an added benefit. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but, but people expect more. You know, mm, a paycheck absolutely. is no longer enough. And no. I think that's an important story to tell in investment banking because many would write off the industry as we simply pay people. That's the mm -hmm. only reason people come to work. So right. I think you're, tell, you're telling a new story. They may come, but they won't stay for that. People need, they need something that's mm -hmm. bigger and better and more um, personally enhancing. Yeah. So Amy, as you, as you think of... BCG management consulting, and especially the folks, uh, you know, Amy was telling some amazing stories about 
even in the middle of New York snowstorms, people saying, please don't close down the office. So when you think of these people, you're e emailing you, ensuring the office is still open in the middle of snowmageddon. Uh, tell us about these these BCG consultants. What are what are what are they what are they what are they like? So it's really interesting. I think it's a similar profile to what Amy mentioned. Very high achievers um, who have who have an interesting uh, career pursuit. Right, they're going into companies that are facing tough stuff, and they're mm -hmm. coming in trying to engineer solutions. And sometimes mm -hmm. the solutions are more tough stuff. Mm -hmm. And it is a lot of travel. You're living on the road. You're living out of a suitcase. You're away from your family. And what you're coming home to, we have also, our office is about 75% millennial, is often from an apartment perspective, living with three other roommates in a studio apartment. Often people will come and take a job at BCG living away from their family. So the place that coming back to a place that feels like home is something mm. that's very mm -hmm. important. And that's where I think the mind, body, and soul comes in. And so our office is beautiful at 10 Hudson Yards. But really, what people, I believe, are really saying when they say, please don't close the office, it's because of the people. And so we really did change the whole notion of back office operators. Mm. Everybody is now front and center. We actually do not have a traditional reception desk. For those of you who have been to the office, we didn't want a barrier between the employee and the client mm -hmm. and the company. So we actually have people that stand up and greet you by name and they've learned a little bit about you and they help you navigate the office. And so because we want to make sure that for people especially who live a life on the road and the anonymity that comes from living in and out of hotel, they come home and they feel known to us because that is, the, that is an important proposition for us for all of our client work. I'll also say that we don't only have consultants. In our New York office, we have about 200 people who are in non-consulting roles, functions like HR and finance, administration team, operations, IT. And so ensuring that your culture proposition resonates with everybody is very important. So there are some basic tenets that, of course, ring true in terms of amenities and so on and so forth. But people need different things. So as we actually encountered the design of the office, it was very important to make sure that there were members of every single cohort around the table because people work very differently. There are people who are also here five days a week. So do the programs that you're generating feel stale for people who are always here? But then how do you deal with the folks who are never here and you don't want them to miss out on the things that you bring into the office? And so I think it's acknowledging that not everybody works the same way and creating a design and a culture proposition that has versatility. I find mm -hmm. millennials especially are really seeking versatility in the way that yep. they work, mm -hmm. the style of their work. And so one of the things we looked at, especially in design, is making sure that no two offices look the same or meeting mm -hmm. rooms or even chairs. I say it's like a Goldilocks phenomenon. You can sit in every chair and it's mm -hmm. a different experience. And they don't even break. Mm -hmm. And they don't break. Um, and so it's really getting into sort of the psychology and not making assumptions. We use the Leesman study, for those of you who are aware of that workplace study, before and after, so that we thought we knew what people valued, but it was really incredible to actually have the data to look at in the before and after and to reach a Leesman Plus status in the after picture, which only is extended to 6% of workplaces, which for us was proof positive that the changes we made were synergistic with what, what people most valued, because you can't please everyone all the time, but you want to get it right most of the time.
And Sean, how about you? As you, as you think about uh, in the healthcare space, of course, so many folks who come for you know, patient impact and, and sign up for you know, really helping people heal, um, as you think of, but also a, a, you know, a, whole, a whole environment that you're managing that is high stress, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so many moving parts. When you think of the most purpose-driven people that you're employing, what, what are you looking for? Well, there's a core, I think, to people in healthcare. You, you, you're, you're in it to take care of the patients. But when you split that, the motivational drivers across the institution, um, you know, and thinking about it from the context of it being a true business, then you're going to find other subdrivers that you really need to understand. And so mm-hmm. part of what uh, you know, we tend to do is to really try to tap into that. We know where the baseline is. We want to select people who actually identify with our values and who really identify with our core focus, which is to put patients first. Um, and most people, and you talked about millennials, um, you know, really wake up in the morning wanting to do that. So, mm-hmm. so I'm a lucky man from that regard. <laughs> Um, but to keep people there and to keep them driven, to keep them focused, and really understanding from IT that wants cutting-edge technology um, you know, to the ideal around, can I work from home, which is one of the most popular questions that I get right now, um, you know, to that connection with my boss, which is so critical to engagement. Because people don't leave companies. They leave their bosses. And so that experience, that authentic leadership is so critical uh, in, in order to drive that continuous feeling that people need to have. There's one thing fundamentally we all want. We all want to be seen. We all want to be valued. And so the net of that means if I want to get the best of the Amy's, um, I need to think about how I approach the Amy's, and it might be different mm. than how I approach you. So you know, when you look along the spectrum at the core again, I would say the 45,000 people across our system uh, really arrive there to take care of patients. Mm. And they really get disengaged when they're not taking care of the patients because there are all kinds of things that get in the way uh, in order to take care of their patients. But mm. you know, also we can identify on the other side people who are not a fit for us if that's not a priority. Yeah. Well, and if you think about the role that not only everyone in this room, on, on the stage plays, but everyone in the room plays holistically, which is... Um, you know, building either the experiences internally or the locations mm-hmm. physically that, um, that play one of the most critical roles, which is employing people where they spend the majority of their lives every day. And this is a tough mm-hmm. order, right? It's a tall order. And one that, again, we, we have a long way to go in sort of figuring out the, the best practices. One of the things I would love to just open up, uh, of course, uh, with everyone in the room is the role that our physical spaces play in creating our cultures. Mm -hmm. Now, the pendulum has swung in many directions on on this question. I've had people tell me, we don't even need offices anymore. Everyone is just going to work from home in the future. All the way to, our offices play such a critical role in the well-being of our people that there is absolutely no Mm -hmm. way they will ever change. We know that we've gone from a history of the mahogany corner desk, corner office, to open seating, um, you know, in places, I, I'd be very curious from your perspective, Sean, I know there are certain aspects of the office that in a healthcare environment that can't change. So this is, this is an elephant in the room. We have new companies like Remote Year that are actually sending uh, employees out on the road to, to travel for the full year. They work remotely there. 
Um, you know, the jury is really still out mm -hmm. on the prescriptive solution to sort of what role the office plays. But I, I'd love for us to talk about this because we know that despite the fact that we have more people working remotely, working from home than ever, loneliness, according to the Pew's Research Institute, is at the highest level it's mm -hmm. ever been in history. Mm -hmm. Loneliness is at an all-time high. People's sense of belonging is at an all-time low. We know that if employees are disengaged at work, mm -hmm. the connection they have to each other in a, in a shared environment um, is, is critical. So the work that you all lead mm -hmm. in helping bring that to life is really important. So I'd love for us to just share sort of where, where are we seeing the role that the office plays? How critical is it right now? What do, you, what do you believe to be the future? Let's start, let's start with Amy. Sure, absolutely. I would say that without question that our space has created a sense of collaboration that we never had before. So when we moved into our offices in 200 West, um, what was it, 2010, 2009, 2010, um, it was such a stark, dramatic difference from when we were down at 85 Broad, which was very dark, many offices, and suddenly you had light and open seating. But you've also created a sense of community, and that's where the place that you build your building can make such an important difference. Now, when we first moved to 200 West, there was no community around it. Mm. But Goldman took the opportunity to help build and stimulate mm -hmm. um, the environment around it. And so now, our people not only feel like they are in a collaborative environment inside the building, which is critical, right? I mean, everything from making sure you've got fresh air to being LEED certified to all the different things that everyone in this room could speak to better than I can, especially my colleague, Cindy. Um, but even more so, I think, is that sense of community that people mm. feel, whether it's running to the ball field across the street or you know, helping out and tutoring the mm -hmm. students at PS89 down the street or um, you know, doing events with our community partners at Borough Manhattan Community College. Mm -hmm. It was that commitment to not only a building, mm -hmm. but it's a commitment to a community. Mm -hmm. And so obviously when Goldman decided to make the decision to stay downtown, um, not, not only post 9-11, but making the commitment to move into 200 West, it was a commitment to a community. And people do feel rooted there mm -hmm. in a way that they might not have mm -hmm. otherwise. And I think that that gives people that sense of belonging because people do travel a lot, mm -hmm. but we also have a lot of mobility. We have mm -hmm. people who have come from all over the world and come to New York and work. So building that sense of community inside the building, but also outside the building, is critical to not only someone, an individual's well-being, but it inspires how we engage with our clients and inspires, I think, our overall sense of culture and our sense of service. Wonderful. Amy. So I'll say that our, the move to Ten Hudson Yards, no question, the before and after was very poignant. I think it was like flipping a switch in terms of the way that we engaged with one another. Um, we actually used humanized technology, those of you who are aware of how that works, and we had some employees opt into a program where they wore badges that was a, were able to track not what they were doing, but their motion throughout the office, because our guiding principle was the collision coefficient, and we wanted to make sure that in our after scenario in the office, there were more serendipitous connections between people than before, and we actually have a great spider chart that really brings this to life. 
to show how many more just sheer interactions people were having because of the way that the office was designed and because of the things that we installed into the program, such as something like communal eating, where people went from inhaling a sandwich over their um, their computer to what feels like just your best high school cafeteria mm-hmm. ever. And it was one of those, if you can, if you build it, they will come. There was nowhere to go before. And so we needed that structure in order to energize people to work differently mm-hmm. together. Um, I will say what I found really interesting is that it's been some of the micro, small, inexpensive changes mm-hmm. that have really driven the culture. For instance, one of our conundrums was that ECG's New York office is the largest office by far is 800 people that are highly mobile and so, and with a lot of different function areas. We also have BCG subsidiary businesses sitting in our office. And so we couldn't figure out how to make this big city feel like a small town because that's what people, as Amy was saying, really care about. And so some of the things we did is we, we assigned seating by neighborhood. So before, people just grabbed a seat where they could. And now mm-hmm. we have practice areas sitting together to help drive commonality just from sort of physical space. And we do a lot of open seating, but it's where people are able to kind of hang their hat. Another thing that we did is we put a bunch of screens up around the office um, that then generated a need to actually hire someone to develop content from those screens. And we put on those screens our storytelling about... Things like tonight, where somebody Mm -hmm. from BCG was talking to a group of people, or great things that people are doing on the road. We have an Instagram account just for our office, where people kind of snap photos. Um, It's a private account just for employees about about their travels. And so while they're out on the road, it not only educates people fundamentally Mm -hmm. about everything that's going on within the business of our business, but Mm -hmm. it gives a storytelling environment. And one of the most low-tech things that we did um, is that we just have like a news digest. <laughs> it's a couple of pages long every two weeks. It sounds crazy as I'm saying it, but the feedback that I receive on this silly little news digest that goes out um, with little pictures and just highlights upcoming events, what went on the week before, what's going up, new people who've come, babies that have been birthed, other milestone events for folks. It's probably the, been the best received piece of communication that's come out. Um, and so sometimes when people come to visit us at 10 Hudson Yards, they'll often say, well, I don't have the budget for this magnitude mm-hmm. of change. I can't get rid of a reception mm-hmm. desk. I'm never going to be allowed to do that. And so it's often sort of the back-to-basic approach about what makes you feel known to a company and what, with all the technology, and ours is qu- quite a complex mm-hmm. pursuit in our office, it's really sometimes the very simple things. Yeah as Sean was saying, that retains people, especially people who, for a living, are immersing themselves in other people's businesses and never get to stay long enough to see what Mm -hmm. happens, which is the nature of management consulting often. It's a powerful message, and I want to be sure we come back to it, which is that we've oftentimes believed that all of these changes are extremely expensive, and some of the most powerful and profound changes we can make uh, in our approach are oftentimes those things that are free. So we'll be sure to come back to that. Sean, as you, as you think of this, you know, your, your, your role in space, of course, well, mine's in the a office little, to the... Mine's a little different. <laughs> right, the operating right. room to the office. I think you want your nurse in the office, right? Um, but, of course, when we think about our corporate groups, we have the same questions in terms of dynamic... Uh, and I want to come back to work from home in a moment. Mm. But I think the, the, the real core here is collaboration. 
um, and the opportunity that uh, we actually have from a collaborative perspective to eliminate meetings. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we all spend how many hours in meetings? Is it really truly productive? I think yeah. that's the question, right? What can you do in 10 minutes while you're standing or crossing each other when you're walking across the hall? So we too have moved into an open space environment for our corporate building. It's actually right down here. It's opening up, uh, actually we have one floor filled so far, but we'll have about 2,000 employees there. Um, and this is our first foray. But as you think about technology and buildings too, we too are looking at, well, how do you actually, um, I wouldn't say track people, but isn't it much more effective that you can find your colleague when you need them, right? Mm-hmm. For something that you need to work on together or to drive together. So technology and open space and designs that really encourage contributions beyond the need to schedule an appointment to go sit in somebody's office. And that's really the the fundamental change that's happening. But I'd also attach flexibility. Mm. Instead of everyone working from home, the notion really is that people want more flexibility in their lives. I don't think it's that they don't want to come into the office ever. Um, And that loneliness feeling um, that you described, Arthur, um, is real. If Mm. you're not connected to your teammates, if you can't sit in a collaborative space to work on some common design, it actually not only has detrimental impact to the organization, but it actually takes away from the engagement that you want from people. And that word community, I think, is really uh, the goal, to create a community that's a natural, flexible community, and that we all get to work in different ways, right? So mm. I'm a late guy. I hate 7 a.m. meetings. I'll come in. It's um, a good thing we didn't host a panel at 7 a.m. Yes, we were first yeah. going to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for the 6 Yeah, we didn't do the breakfast session this time. <laughs> but you get the most of someone when you actually can get the most of, of that person based on how they actually work. Mm. So even for nurses, we do flexible work shifts. Um, you know, we're talking about remote work. We, we do some. Um, But even with remote work, the ideal is to get people in the office at a common time where you can see each other, where you can share things, and that you can actually drive things together. So there's a lot of pluses, I think, to an open space environment and tremendous amount of pluses when you're thinking about that flexibility in people's lives. People want to go to the gym. You, you, You want to be a parent. You want to be present in your children's lives. You have other commitments, and it's a blending, and that's what we're actually seeing more of, being requested of more, Mm -hmm. so that we can actually redesign, ultimately, what work used to look like. So I think over time, that 12-hour day, that traditional for the core, um, is what we're really talking about. Unfortunately for many of us in this room, we're still gonna work 12 or 14 hours, but isn't it great to be able to do that while not in the office. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I know that that was the main reason that most of you came tonight was to know if in 10 years there will still be offices. And the answer is it sounds like yes. <laughs> so don't worry, we, we still, there's still a future in real estate. Um, what, what I think is really interesting, and I shared with the Amy's and with Sean, you know, years ago I was uh, a rising leader at Google and uh, we had a huge emphasis on our office space and on the, the, the meals and the perks and the benefits. And many of you have heard the, the the myths of the free lunches at Google, they are really amazing. I, I cannot, I cannot uh, argue with that. But what I, what I shared was we, we had built a culture 
where we emphasized the perks and the benefits and the office space so much mm -hmm. that we oftentimes were missing the simple fact, as Amy had shared, that our people are here for more than that. Mm -hmm. And while they love the comforts of great space and free lunches, in many cases, they, they want a sense of belonging. They want a sense of, of significance. And so uh, later on, of course, what we would find in our research was the things that people are looking for from an intrinsic perspective can be summed up in one acronym we call RIG. It's a sense of relationships, which we consider to be belonging, uh, a sense of impact, doing work that you feel is meaningful and, and creates value, and growth, uh, feeling like you, you grow and develop. And so when we think of intrinsically what people want in work, beyond the paycheck, beyond the promotion, it really comes down to those three things. Mm -hmm. What's powerful about office, the, the spaces we create, as well as the programs we lead, and the experiences we create for our people, is they really emphasize all three of those things. Our, our office space helps people connect. It helps people um, do work that is aligned to their skills um, and, and even have opportunities to grow just as much as our internal programming, the, our, our talent systems and our structures. So when we've thought of those three things, a lot of what we believe to be the future value proposition of work can be summed up by how we believe we will articulate those three things for our people. By the way, when people leave their jobs, typically they point out one of those three things, if not all three, missing. Mm -hmm. I don't feel a sense of belonging. I don't feel like I'm making a difference here. I don't feel like I'm growing. Those are primary reasons people leave their jobs. So the question is, in the future of work, as we think maybe 10 years out even, um, in an intrinsic way of looking at work, what are some things you think we might be able to envision for ourselves? If we were to dream big right now, if you were unlimited budget, unlimited uh, autonomy right now, uh, if you could create sort of the, the future experience for your people, um, what, what are some things we can kind of imagine right now? And we can go in any order. Wow. Um, the one thing I would say is that you do have to always be imagining. You yeah. always have to be on the, on the front foot and thinking about what's next. Mm -hmm. You can never rest on your laurels on what's mm -hmm. good enough today or what's best mm -hmm. today because people's needs evolve and people's needs change and what they value change. So, you know, we, we talked a lot about how we, measuring our culture has always been important to Goldman, particularly since our IPO, because obviously that was a significant transition for us. And so I think, um, anticipating, understanding where people are and understanding where they may want to go is so critical. Um, and so it's, it's keeping an ear to the ground, understanding not only what is best in class now, but what's coming down the pike. And we often talk about what's the newest tech trend or what's the newest space trend, but I think it, it really is understanding holistically what are all the opportunities that you could present for your people. Mm. So it's, it's really... Um, never letting yourself get flat-footed. So I don't know what exactly the next great thing is going to be, but... Um, it sounds I, like you're in this inventive role, which is being open to what it will thinking be. thinking about and, it. And, and, and having I, your people largely tell you what they need. Absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's understanding what might be available that they don't even know is available. Because mm. I think that's mm. what is cutting edge, right? So it's, um, it's even the concept of buildings being well-certified, you know, something that is obviously a newer trend and mm. is something that we're thinking about with some of our newer buildings that we're building globally. But it's, it's understanding what can you make available that you don't even know is possible. So it's, it's dreaming, dreaming what's possible. And Amy, I think you did a beautiful job of 
you know, building a dialogue with your people throughout this whole move, right? Um, and it was a fairly historic move for the company. Yeah. And building a community where you, you didn't have to have a prescriptive answer, but you could ask people what they needed. And so how are you seeing that as you're looking at the evolution of this? I know this is a case study that BCG may even leverage in many other places. So how is that dialogue going to continue? Yeah, so our office is known as an explorer office, so we test a lot of things. And I think as I look to the future and under sort of what you mentioned, if you could do anything, um, I think the most important thing is make sure the changes you make are authentic to the brand of your business. Mm. There will always be a better, cooler, nicer thing. But hold that up against the vision, mission, and value proposition mm-hmm. of your particular business and make sure it fits because mm-hmm. you can get very carried away with the bells and whistles and similar to what you talked about on the Google mm-hmm. food proposition front, which is, and then you kind of take your eye off sort of what are the core things about the business mm-hmm. piece and the employee piece. And so where I think I'd, I would like to heavily invest against is um, – is also taking the notion of leadership seriously. Mm -hmm. So as people progress in the company, it's not enough to just be good at what you do. Mm -hmm. Everything about what true leadership means and running team and caring about people and being empathetic um, and pushing people forward, all of that is important. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes it can be hard to lose sight if somebody is a very good practitioner Mm -hmm. um, and then can end up in a managerial role and making sure that person really embodies the value of leadership. I don't, I don't think we do enough mm-hmm. talking about that mm-hmm. and continuing to prioritize. I'll say on top of that, learning and development is something that people have really right. been raising their hand for. Mm-hmm. There cannot be enough. And I don't think it's the quantity, it's the quality, which means really understanding when people say, I want more learning and development, what mm-hmm. does it mean? Mm-hmm. And sometimes when it, looking instead of career path, looking at career experience. So mm-hmm. sometimes you can't give someone that next right. progression, but you can plug them into a mm-hmm. lot of great opportunities. And then finally, I think building on what you had said is sometimes just the notion of flexibility Mm -hmm. is enough. Mm -hmm. So just work from home. We do a lot of wringing of hands on work from home, and and that is a request, not so much the consultants that are on the road, but it's our business services team. And what I find is when you sort of just offer the option, people are not as eager to take it. But when you build walls around their experience, that's when people start to negotiate against themselves and feel like Mm. they have to leave. And so I think... We have to continue to do better at having open conversations and making sure that even though we do have some guidance, because we have to, and there are certain roles where you have to be in a certain place and boots on the ground and so on, part of our value proposition to employees is we meet you where you are at every stage of your life, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and making sure that that connection is very clear, right. even when you have you know, rules and regulations of sorts that just keep things moving and so continuing to be really thoughtful about how we communicate policy and how we engage every employee as an individual over what we hope is a very long life experience with us. And it sounds like employee ownership is a really central theme of what you're mm-hmm. describing that that it's more of a partnership between the organization and yes. its people. Mm-hmm. So I think ditto to everything. The, the <laughs> what core, they said. What they said. <laughs> But at the core is authentic leadership and uh, creating a relationship with those who work for you and who you work for. If we can really tap into 
um, you know, the, the idea or ideals of people, the input, the contributions. Um, and we can actually have open doors where we're having conversations. You're gonna have your answer. Mm. Um, and when we do engagement surveys, by the way, that's what we do. We, we come back and say, now we got the survey. Now go talk to your workforce and find out what they really mean. Um, but if that conversation is continuous, and so if I dare to dream, it really would be that. That's, that's probably 50% of my job is mm. translating between people in order to get the best of people so people, again, can be able to express themselves, hear where we are, figure out whether they fit within the organization or not fit with the organization. But I do want to point out, you know, the world's going to be drastically different, right? You know, there's that BCG today, um, you know, talking about, um, you know, sponsorship, mentorship, advancing people. So mm. the growth aspect, yes, is important, but the job today is not going to be the job tomorrow. And as we think about embracing technology, whether it be AI or otherwise, I think it's important to have an ethos that guides the organization so that your workforce understands um, that you're as committed to them as they are committed to you. Mm. People need to feel that in order to really feel a sense of belonging with your organization. And so, um, you know, we're all going to be going through that, or many of us will be going through that, and translating for people, four different generations at work, um, who feel safe and comfortable, who doesn't. Um, and it's a different message for all of the individuals that you're actually connecting with um, in order for them to know that you care. That's fundamental. So for us, we actually, a couple years ago, put in what, uh, a respect credo that really is the guide for mm. many of our conversations, right? Every role, every voice counts. Um, and the net end of that is it really defines what we will do, what we won't do. And when you're stuck, you can go back to that, you know, to, to, to really check in to identify whether or not we're moving in the right direction. Mm. Um, that respect word, it's just it's a little word, but it means a lot. And it means a lot of different things to many different people. And so if I actually dare to dream, mm. um, it's not about the buildings, though the buildings are important. He doesn't um, mean it. No, no, no I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we'll always have buildings. How about that? <laughs> don't worry, don't um, worry. But it's really about that core connection with people. And I think if we mm. uh, move towards that, I will tell you for sure, uh, millennials want it, and those that are coming behind them want that yeah. um, in order for them to feel like they're connected. And that's going to make the difference as well between whether they stay or leave. There's a great book that describes this transformation um, called Reinventing Organizations, if you have a chance to read it. And what he describes here is this, this, this departure from a traditional command and control model, which, which he calls a red organization, a pyramid organization, where... Um, really, the, the, the ethos was fear, a fear-based way of managing people, of managing organizations, largely built around hierarchy, um, which was really kind of the Jack Welsh model. Um, the bottom 10% is cut. You know, if you're a high performer, you are promoted. Um, and largely, you know, status and, and extrinsic reward was the way that we motivated people. Um, and he describes this aspiration of a teal organization, which is the complete inverse of that, um, largely a... Uh, an egalitarian model where everyone owns their own career. Um, it's largely a partnership-based approach of you and your relationship with the organization. One of the things that he writes is that no organization is in this place today. Um, the, the furthest we've really gotten is what he calls a green organization, which is largely based on a culture-driven approach. And so what it means is, I think in the spirit of everything that was, that was shared, 
Um, we have a ways to go, but we know that this is where it's all going. Mm -hmm. We know that um, years ago, people would go to school and they would learn, they would go to a job and they would earn, and then they would one day retire and they would return. And now people want to do all three of those things right now mm -hmm. um, in their job today. Uh, that is completely shifting the traditional relationship that we have had with our people. And I think that it's, it's extraordinarily exciting, um, partly because, as I mentioned earlier, the playbook hasn't been written. So one of the things that um, has come up is this question of who really owns our culture, who principally owns our culture. And I know this is something we all talked about. Um, I'd be really curious to know, in your organizations, what is that answer today um, in terms of who primarily owns culture and what do you believe it will be moving forward? And maybe we could start with you, Sean, because um, I know you've, you've gotten to go last every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what I would say today, I mean, leadership really matters, and we, we, we talked about that, and people um, will you know, often look up, especially in a traditional environment like a uh, healthcare institution. Um, but leadership is no longer about the person at the top. It's also about the person who's exhibiting it on the floor. Um, you know, and so I believe the future will change. I mean, the, this whole idea that people want to be part of and they want to contribute, um, you know, you know, around that sort of idea of shared values um, is, is, is going to influence the workforce uh, for sure. Um, and if you're just taking a set of behaviors, it's really a set of behaviors, what are your cultural norms really will become about the cultural norms of your workforce mm. if you really want to tap in and get the best out of them. Still leadership, I think, will matter around direction, around vision. Um, you know, but I also raise often, and, and, and did over the last couple of days, uh, what are those disruptors and who's creating those disruptions within your environments and how do you encourage that to happen, which is also part of uh, the evolution of culture. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. I think it obviously everyone looks to leadership. At BCG, it's very interesting. It's a partnership, um, which really cascades down for everything. So it isn't your traditional hierarchy. It's one partner, one vote. And so there really is this combined leadership pursuit. But I will say that the voice of every employee matters. Mm -hmm. We actually have a people survey that co goes out and comes back to us. And there, it doesn't matter what cohort or what level is reporting in the themes are the themes, and they are addressed to make sure that everybody matters. And mm -hmm. I think that um, at our place, we look very carefully at the things that are happening within the project environment, in high-stress scenarios, and there's literally almost a no tolerance for bad behaviors. Mm -hmm. And it was actually quite shocking to me when I came to BCG, especially coming from a startup environment um, that was light on this type of thoughtfulness. And I almost can't believe that a firm of this caliber can hold this so dear in every pocket of the organization, and they do. Um, and so in order to police that, um, it's very important that everybody is held accountable at every level of the organization. Mm -hmm. It becomes contagious. You shift the way that you behave, even in a high-stress environment, because of what you're seeing happen around you. And so I think along with that, it's important to make space, as you said, Sean, for the disruptors, because there, there needs to be some provocateurs in the mix that challenge the status quo. And so how to do that in an environment that really values positivity and collaboration and community is very, very hard to architect. So I think looking forward, 
having the right balance between being able to shake things up but also Mm -hmm. to be compliant with the cultural norms that are people-centric is going to be a very hard line to Mm -hmm. walk Mm -hmm. and to find the people that can do it is going to be um, a very specific sort of challenge. So I would say for us, um, we... um, we're very firm about communicating that our people are the cultures, are the stewards of our culture. Every person at every level is responsible for building and maintaining the culture. Mm. Now, obviously, it's learned from those who are senior to you, but it's also your peers. And so it's everyone's responsibility to maintain some ownership, not only for the accountability for how you behave and what the general cultural norms or behaviors are, but we have 14 business principles that guide our behavior. They include things like innovation. They include things like accountability. The client comes first. Um, But it's very important that everyone feels ownership Mm -hmm. for the success of the culture because our brand, our reputation, and the success of our company are all built on the foundation that is our culture. And if every single person at your Mm -hmm. company does not feel invested and feel like an owner in it, that's where, where cultures fall apart and organizations fall apart. Because if you depend purely on your leadership, if you have one person who's in leadership who's behaving badly, then everyone feels, then, then that sends a negative message down through the organization. It's important that people feel like as a collective, they're stronger, healthier, and principled as a collective, and that it doesn't just lie on one or two people. Yeah. Well, and I think what's so important here... We have a little time for questions. Yes, uh, we, don't worry, we're, we have a time check, don't worry. <laughs> um, so we're, we're on it, we're on it. There, there is, uh, you know, just to, to conclude that thought, uh, oftentimes culture is, is placed in one box. Like, oh, it's owned by HR. Oh, no, this is only our space. And I, what, I, what I hear from all of you, not only symbolic of your roles and collectively forming this conversation, but... Um, but also where each, each of your organizations really sits mm-hmm. today, um, how interdependent all of these pieces are in terms of forming that relationship with our people, instilling that sense of ownership, creating a culture where people are just as invested as leaders, leaders are. And I think that's what, that's what will make this increasingly exciting, is uh, this, this plane that we are building, um, we are flying it at the same time. We're building it as we fly it. And um, here today, you have three amazing leaders from three leading organizations, I think sharing not only what they've done well already, but also you can see um, that are in this continued learning uh, state, constantly listening to your people and designing solutions that will continue to meet their needs. And, and I think to Sean's point, what it looks like in the future, we, don't, we can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's exciting. So with that, we're going to open it up to questions. Um, and... I believe we, I don't know if we have a mic, but we, I guess we can, oh yeah, we do have a mic in the back here. So we'd love to open this up. Anything, this is a, you know, of course, an awesome group. So any, any, any area where we, you'd like to go in this conversation, you can ask even questions about office space. I know that might be top of mind. Any questions? Yes, please. So you see, you hear so frequently mm. uh, about, about physician burnout. And so I would imagine that kind of a trickle-down effect to the support staff. Mm -hmm. 
Are there any programs that you have in place to, to avoid that so people feel that they're developing new skills, their job is enhanced, mm -hmm. it's not same old, same old? Yes. So, so we've been focused a lot on that, and, and, and I'm going to broaden it a little bit and then come back to physicians, um, that just well-being generally um, is something, you know, we were tapping into the idea that when people come to work, you're coming to work already with several things on your mind. Um, then you're adding work to that, um, and it's high stress in many instances. So, you know, identifying opportunities. I mean, we, we have many programs from yoga to, you know, you know, you know, you know all kinds of meditation. We're exploring um, now opportunities to leverage technology where you can actually, people will play games, gamification, to identify uh, where they are on the spectrum in terms of um, you know, high stress or depression or any of those kinds of things. But I think coming back to flexibility, designing work so that people actually can have time, downtime, to be able to spend time where they're not so um, um, you know, sort of deeply immersed into what's actually happening. But the reality is coping mechanisms and teaching those skills are becoming a part of the everyday practice, um, you know, certainly for the group that reports to me that ensures that the organization is hearing it, or for our resident physicians who are working very long hours and trying to make sure that things are much more simple, simple for them, if you will. You know, if you want food, if you want some of those things, it's a work in progress, but it is a continuous work in progress by trying to identify what people's needs are. Um, and identifying, this is a big role for leaders and peers, really identifying when people are in crisis. Mm. Yes? So you're, excuse me, you're all part of the best place to work. So what has surprised you? I've seen you do exit interviews. Is there something that you hear kind of more often than not that kind of surprises you, knowing how hard your companies work to be a best place to work? I thought you don't try at all for that. That's just, it's <laughs> yeah. just, it's just, <laughs> it just every year, yeah. Right. It just happens. I, I, I would say that those things, those things evolve over time, right? So um, at one point it might have been when the big talk was free for lunches. Now, obviously, that's not why someone would leave, but in principle, you know, those kinds of extra benefits. For us, it was, you know, in the earlier days, it was this question of flexibility, being in an investment mm -hmm. bank. You needed to be there. You needed to be at your desk. There was no sense of flexibility. So I think over time, it's evolved from that to this desire for creativity and innovation. Again, we're in a heavily regulated industry, which, you know, that desire to be creative and innovative when, particularly in the engineering or technology space, someone could pop over and go to a company like, you know, Google or one of these incredible startups. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's one of the places that we probably struggle most in. Mm. It's, mm -hmm. it's an area that it's less about core benefits and it's more about those um, intangibles that are sometimes difficult for us being in a highly regulated mm -hmm. industry to be mm -hmm. able to um, work around. So we're but ever since you opened that cryptocurrency desk, you're getting the Googlers back, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, you want to go next? You want to... Sure, I'll say um, I think what What's interesting to me, and I haven't had many of the exit conversations, um, but I think so often to hear someone on the other side of the desk that has kind of talked themselves into a space that may have been preventable had they come mm -hmm. midway through to say, 
I want to be a mom, but I want to be a partner, and mm -hmm. I don't feel like it's possible. Mm -hmm. And we know it's possible because mm -hmm. we've had we have an entire women initiative there, and we try, you know, very much through programs, etc. But they just look at it and say, well, they're always on the road, and how do you make that happen? And so. I think, as I said earlier about negotiating against yourself or to say something like, my life has changed and I absolutely must work from home for the next six months, but I know I'll never be allowed to do that, so I mm -hmm. guess I have to leave. Mm -hmm. And so I really encourage employees to come early when they start first start to feel the stirrings of discontent, because especially with a global, highly mobile firm with so many different functional areas, there are different places to plug in, and often there's a backstory to how someone has made themselves successful, even with different personal demands, which is often the thing that I hear the most, that doesn't get shared enough one-on-one, -on -one, because where do you find space to have that vulnerability right. with your much junior employees? So I really try to encourage, especially our senior leaders, especially the women, to speak very candidly, and sometimes it's really breaking down. Like, how do you deal with the nanny? Yes, you're going to miss mm -hmm. a lot of school plays, and there's always a trade-off. And having, making sure that there are forums to have those conversations, because often I have found that had there been mm -hmm. a different moment, there could have been a preventative measure that may have set a different course. I think for us, um, you know, data comes in a number of different ways. So surprise, rarely. Um, uh, consistent feedback is consistent feedback, and we're very mm -hmm. focused on the themes that we're getting in a number of different places. So if we're hearing it from the new hire that you hire, who's there three or six months, you're hearing it on the engagement survey, you're hearing it in our various town halls, our CEO town halls, our EVP town halls, or any of the leadership town halls, um, then the, the exits really is, is more of an endorsement of that for me. Um, I think the two biggest things I've been surprised about, and that's because it's 2018, and I can't believe this is still happening, that respect is such a core issue. Mm. But when you look on outside what's happening in the world today, it's no longer a surprise, right? You know, culture also of your organization also is influenced by what's happening on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, this notion that people want to be respected was one of the things we knew we needed to act upon. Uh, but the other thing we needed to act upon was parental leave. You know, you know, mm -hmm. People who wanted to have time with their families was very loud and clear as an issue. And then student loans is the other one. Mm -hmm. People are coming into the workforce with six-figure loans, mm -hmm. right? So you know, we're going to have to figure that out. We're all going to have to figure that out. Um, because if your person comes to work, and you know, Arthur talked about the level of disengagement in the country. Well, if you show up at work and you're already worried, yeah. because you can't pay something that you're working to pay, that's the reality. And so finding solutions that are meaningful solutions to people is really credible and important. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the thing that has really shifted for me with the data over the last probably year and a half um, is the need for us as leaders to talk about what's happening nationally. Mm. You know, when things are said... Um, you know, whether it's something about, you know, you know, Mexico or otherwise, guess what? Our workforce needs to feel that sense of community. They need to yeah. feel safe at work. And therefore, we're talking about things that, as a practitioner, I would have said to you five years ago, don't talk about that. Right. All right? Mm -hmm. It's really changed because if we're not addressing that, your workforce won't know where you are. Yeah. They won't know where your values are. 
and it gets conflated with, with, with the issues that are not your issues. Um, and so we talk about the real issues because people really want to talk about those issues. Yeah. That's such an important point, and I, I know this has come up quite a bit across industries, that not responding is sending a very strong signal. And a central theme that I'm hearing uh, across industries as well is, is establishing an authentic conversation with your people and telling them where you stand on right. things. That, that even amounted at Google to them sharing board minutes from board of directors meetings and candidly walking through step-by-step step what happened in, behind closed doors. It typically was in the ivory tower, right? Right. Um, so I, I, I feel like that's a, that must be a central theme throughout, that people, this is a time when people want a sense of humanity in their connection to the communication. Right? It is, and it's not political in any way. I want to make yeah. sure I underscore yeah. that. But it's more so about, you know, you know, do we appreciate individuality? Do we appreciate mm. diversity? How do, how do we comport ourselves at work? What's really important? Really making sure that we're saying those things so that people can really identify with them. So we use a lot of our... Um, you know, programs on diversity, our dialogues to talk about many of these things mm. and many forums to make sure that we're addressing what's happening, um, you know, with the issue du jour of the day, mm. including safety, including, you know, the other day when, you know, someone drove a car into an emergency room, right? We had to talk about that because yeah. it means that people are worried about that at work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We might have time for one more question. Yes, over here. Uh, talked about the focus on free food and, and those kind of amenities and then uh, technology and how do, you, how do you leverage technology and all of that comes at a great expense. But you touched on earlier the low-cost, no-cost um, aspects um, and, I, and we haven't gotten back to that. So I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit more mm-hmm. on the low-cost, mm-hmm. no-cost aspects of what you're doing to, uh, for employee engagement. Yeah. So I, I would love to... And this, this is really where, you know... The, the, the model of rig, your relationships are impacting your growth, largely which many of, many of those things which have nothing to do with how much you're paid or what perks you have, that was, that was really where we're seeing it come in. But I'd love to hear, you know, what are, what are the examples of, of the sort of non-monetary rewards and intrinsic motivators that people have, right? Mm-hmm. I, I would say um, from, a, from a baseline, it's about communication, transparency, authenticity, which all kind of bundles together, if you will, mm-hmm. um, but doing things like having town halls, encouraging managers mm-hmm. to recognize our people. I would say employee recognition is probably one of the single um, highest value things that we can do. And I'm not talking about giving a gift. I'm not talking, mm-hmm. telling, reminding people to say thank you or having your senior leadership walk a floor. Do th- things that express mm-hmm. that sort of connectivity and build that sense of community I think that those kinds of engagements have more value than most of your training programs, than most of, you can invest money in all kinds of perks, but if people don't feel a human connection and don't feel that sense of authenticity and transparency, you know, you're going to lose that sense of engagement, which honestly for something like Great Place to Work, two-thirds of the submission is based, or your, your uh, points are based on employee satisfaction. So if you're not engaging with your people and you're not connecting with them, mm-hmm. and that's the lowest cost thing you can do. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to interrupt and just say that um, the program is 
concluded here, but it continues out there where there's drinks and some more food. So we would encourage everyone with questions still to hopefully the speakers can be around for at least another 15 minutes and certainly a drink. But we want to really thank them because um, it was just really insightful and interesting to hear the the endeavors that they've taken and the accomplishments uh, that they've achieved. So I would encourage everyone to um, continue your uh, questions and interest. And thank you again. Thank you. And thank you, Arthur. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you guys. Thank you.